wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God once again for bringing us together this morning to approach Him as we sing to Him and calling out to His name, even as a church, coming together and praying and uh, pouring our hearts before Him. And once again, even as we come, we open up His Word to hear what He has to say to us. And we starting today with um, a new series on, on, on the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this series, what we're going to do, we're going to title the whole series, uh, Philippians, Life in Christ. Philippians, Life in Christ. And I want you to go to the book of Philippians. And today, what we're going to do, we're going to just, um, it's more of an introduction. And in, in this introduction, it's more of a, if you think about a, a big forest, a, a big forest, it's more of a, an eagle's eye view of the book, an eagle's eye view. And as we continue on with the series, we're going to uh, approach it with a lion's eye view. The, 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 the eagle sees um, how wide the forest is, how big the forest is, and the lion discovers the details of the forest. And this is what we, we're going to do as we go into uh, the letter uh, uh, that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. Let us uh, commit this time to the Lord in prayer as we, we come to him and uh, commit our hearts and our minds that the Lord will work in us as we uh, consider what he has to say to us. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God who speaks to us, faithfully speaking to us daily through his word. And we pray that you will open our spiritual ears to hear you, O oh God, that we may hear what you have to say to us, hear your truth, hear your corrections, your, your teachings, hear as you speak to our lives, O oh God, and may we, 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 that we may respond as well, O oh Father. Draw us to yourself even this morning that we may know you, honor you, and glorify you with our lives as we hear your word. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. Now when you look at this uh, letter, as Paul writes to uh, the, the church in Philippi, uh, the Philippians, the account of... Um, of how the church in Philippi was planted is found in Acts chapter 16. And this was Paul's second missionary journey as he went from place to place planting churches. And uh, their entrance in Philippi was orchestrated by the very hand of God. Initially, their plans was to go into, into Asia to preach the gospel. But when you look at Acts chapter 16 verse 6, um, it, it says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to, to speak the word in Asia. Then they went, instead of going to Asia, they went to uh, Mysia. They went to Mysia and from there attempting to, to go from Mysia and to go into Bethania. And again we read in verse 7 of Acts chapter 16 that it says, But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bethania. And, and as, 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 as those events went on, um, they are followed by a vision. Paul sees a vision of a man of, of Macedonia, urging Paul, saying to him, come over to Macedonia to help us. And they made their way from Troas, uh, where they were, 
and they went to to Macedonia. Um, and, 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 and as they go into Macedonia, which is uh, uh, when they head into Macedonia, they are actually going to Philippi. Philippi is a district of, of Macedonia. So they take a two-day trip. That normally took about five days. So you can see the hand of God orchestrating everything because th this trip normally, on, an, on a normal uh, day, it takes about five days. But as they head to Macedonia from Troas, they take about two days. So God, um, we see the urgency here of the gospel, that God wants the, Philipp the, the Philippians to hear the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as they arrive in, 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 uh, in Philippi, one of the, the things that Paul used to do when he arrives in the city, he would look for a synagogue, right? He would look for a synagogue where he would use the synagogue as a launching pad for the, the, the planting of the church in that city. But in this church, in the city of Philippi, it was, it was different because there was no synagogue. And, and this would, would tell us, would, it would imply to us that in this city, there were no Jewish men. Because in order for there to be a synagogue, there has to be 10 Jewish men of households that form a quorum. For, uh, for there to be a synagogue. But there, was, there, 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 there were no Jewish men. So, so the first people that Paul encountered in, in, in Philippi with the gospel were women. These women used to meet outside uh, uh, the, the, the city gate of, 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 of Philippi by the riverside and they would meet for prayer. They, they, they would meet together there to, 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 to pray together and to carry out the Jewish rituals as they were by the riverside. And, and Paul comes with the man that he was going with and they preach the gospel to these women. And, and among these women is a, is a businesswoman by the name of Lydia um, who was converted. She, she heard the gospel as, as the Apostle Paul preached and she became the first convert of the Apostle Paul in Philippi and she comes to Christ Christ, and again, we see that even her household comes to Christ as they are baptized with her. And most probably, the church in Philippi, when you look at it historically, used to meet in her house because she was a woman of um, who had a lot of wealth, and and in those times, people did not have a lot of they did not have big houses, and so uh, her house was um, possibly large, um, and the church started to meet in her place. Now, the second gospel encounter, when you look at Acts chapter sixteen, it, it came by way of satanic opposition, where a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. It says she had a spirit of divination. She was like a sangoma. She, she could tell, uh, she could say true things um, as she was used by satanic spirits. And, and she used to follow Paul and, and the men who accompanied him, uh, shouting at them, saying, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She was not doing this just because she wanted to promote 
Paul and the men that she was going with. She was trying to misdirect and to show that the gospel means nothing because I as well can tell the truth. And, and she did this for many days as the apostle Paul and, and the man that he was with and more specifically Silas as they, were, as, they, as they were in Philippi preaching the gospel. She would always come and say these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of truth. And when you look at it in the ESV, I mean in, in, in the Greek, it doesn't say the way of truth. In the Greek, there's no definite article there. It's a way of truth. In other words, she's saying they proclaim another way. I am another way and they proclaim another way. She's not saying they are the only way to salvation. They are the only way to, to truth. And the Apostle Paul looks at her and he becomes fed up with her and he looks at her and rebukes the spirit out of her. That was the problem. Because this lady brought a lot of wealth to her owners. And as, 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 as Paul rebukes this spirit, this demonic spirit out of her, it means that her owners are not going to gain profit anymore. They are not going to gain wealth anymore because that spirit is no longer there. So these men come together and conspire against Paul and Silas and Paul and Silas are arrested and thrown in jail in Philippi. They are beaten and then as they are in jail there, you can see even the hand of God. How God wanted them to be in jail because he wanted them to encounter the third man. As they are in jail and, and the Apostle Paul, uh, um, he, he was a man of joy, right? He was a man who always rejoiced in the Lord, even in the midst of pain, in the, in the midst of difficulty. So as he was with Paul and Silas, they, did, they started singing in, in prison. They did not listen or, or, or started to, 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 to think about their pains. They started to think about the glory of God. They started to think about the majesty and the greatness of God. And they started to sing hymns to God. What happened there, I remember one of my professors in... in, 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 in um, in seminary said as they worshiped god the worship sounded so nice to god that god started to tap his his feet and the prison started to shake the prison started to shake and and they were released and as they were released this this uh philippian jailer comes and he thinks that they escaped and and this is very important because philippians jailers were held to account um concerning the prisoners if a prisoner escapes that means he would forfeit his life he was going to be killed so he he takes the honorable way he takes his sword and he's about to thrust it into his belly paul stops him and he encounters this man with the gospel this man comes to christ so we see three converts as the church is planted in philippi their time in philippi came to an end after the officials found out that they were roman citizens roman citizens were were not supposed to be arrested or, or beaten without trial. So, so this meant that the officials could end up in legal trouble and so they asked Paul and Silas to leave the city and they left the city. Now, as Paul sits down to write this letter to the church in Philippi, it is about 10 years later after those events. He writes from a prison cell 
Most probably, he's arrested in Rome. It is called, this letter is called one of the prison letters, the prison epistles. He, he writes the letter from a prison cell. And as you look at the letter itself, you can discern that he writes to a church of Christ. When you look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And, 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 and this church has shown its genuine character by a concern for the spread of the gospel. And he uses this letter to encourage them to further live worthily of the gospel, to live lives worthy of the gospel. And to do that, he says, they must possess and express the mind of Christ, as you look at chapter 2. And, and with the faith of the gospel and the mind of Christ and the supply of the Holy Spirit, not only are they to, to make spiritual uh, uh, progress as the church, but the gospel as well has to make progress and it has to make progress in a crooked and depraved generation not only that but when you take time to read through the letter that paul writes and my desire is that you will take this coming week to go through it in your devotions as you as you as you prepare yourself as we will be uh, looking at philippians um, for several months when you, when you read through it, you, you become better acquainted with the man, Paul. You come to realize what, what made Paul tick. What was the driving force of his life? What was the engine of his Christian life? As he sits down in a, in a filthy Roman prison to, to pen down this letter, instead of seeing a man in tears because of his chains, we see a man who is filled with joy. I, I asked my wife during the week as I was preparing um, uh, this introduction and said to her that what would be the first thing that you would do if you found yourself falsely arrested? If you found yourself in prison, what would be the first thing that you would do? And she answered the same way I would answer. I would pick up the phone and call someone. I would call her specifically and say, get me out of here. But Paul doesn't do that. He picks up the pen and he picks up the pen with, with the desire and the purpose to encourage this church in Christ. When you look at this letter, it has been called by, by many theologians the epistle of joy. And it has been a source of encouragement for many believers in their Christian work. It is a letter about life in Christ. As Paul writes, it is clear that he was consumed with Christ. He was a man who was consumed thoroughly and wholly with Christ. Just looking at verse 1, he refers to himself as a servant of Christ. He was a born servant of Christ. He was a man committed to Christ. And when he continues again in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, he, he, he talks about his imprisonment. He, he considers his imprisonment. And as he considers his imprisonment, and you read these words, he rejoices that it has been for Christ. And, and it served to advance the gospel. He is not there wallowing in self-pity, but he is there rejoicing that his arrest, his imprisonment, served to advance the gospel, and it was for Christ. 
He rejoices again uh, that some of his opponents, when you look at that passage, that his opponents that preach the gospel and, and they are preaching the gospel in order to afflict him, that even though they do it out of selfish ambition, he says, I rejoice because Christ is preached. When you look at verse 20 and verse 21, he, he makes it his ambition to honor Christ. He says, whether by life or, or by death, and, and he, 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 he says those famous words, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you continue on looking at verse 29, he makes it clear that not only are we called to only believe in Christ, but we are also called to suffer for his sake. Again in chapter 3, he sees Christ as his high and supreme treasure. He, he, his value of Christ is so high that he counts everything that people could be counting as gain. He counts it as loss. He sees it as nothing in comparison to Christ. He sees Christ as his high and supreme treasure. He values Christ more than he values anything in his life. When you look at verse 12 of chapter 3, he says his desire, his deepest desire is to know Christ. And he continues in verse 12 to say, I press on about this desire. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He was a man possessed by Christ and, and he wanted to know Christ more and more pressing on to make this knowledge of Christ his own because Christ has made him his own. And in chapter 4, he goes on to say, Christ is enough. Christ is enough and he is the source of his contentment and his strength. Paul was a man who experienced both a life of abundance and a life of lack. But even though those lives he experienced, he never worried. He was never a man of anxiety. He was a man who always found Christ to be his strength. He was content in Christ. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when you think about this overview I just gave, it, it does not do justice to Paul's view of Christ and Philippians. But there is no doubt as we look at it that he is completely consumed with Christ. And I wonder if that is the case with you. Is Christ your master? Is Christ your Lord? Can you say with boldness? Can you say with confidence that I am a servant of Christ? Do you rejoice when you suffer on account of Christ? Is, is your aim in life, your, your highest aim in life to honor him, whether by death or by life? If it came to that, will you still be committed to Christ? If it came to the point where your life is endangered because of your allegiance to Christ, because of your commitment to Christ, will you still be committed to him? Do you desire to know him? Is that your desire to know him? Is Christ your life and, and your strength and, and your song? Is Christ all your all in all? Is he the solid rock on which you stand? 
it is unfortunate that someone would claim to would claim Christ as, as Lord and Savior, but not be committed to Him, not be committed to living for Him and to, to serving Him. It, it is even more unfortunate when you say you are a Christian, but your life does not show that you belong to Christ. Your colleagues at work don't know that you're a Christian, that if they found out that you're a Christian, they would be surprised. You see, a life, to, to kind of paraphrase and steal a phrase from Socrates, a life not lived for Christ is not worth living. Socrates says, an unexamined life is not worth living. And I say, a life not lived for Christ is not worth living. City Start was a missionary in Congo, DRC Congo. And he was once asked, because he was a famous cricketer in England, a, a well-known cricketer, um, and he was once asked, and, and people said, you are throwing away your life. And, and he looked at them and said, if Christ be God and, and he died for me, there is no sacrifice that I could make that is too great. And the most famous words that he ever spoke, he said, there is only one life. It will soon pass. Listen to this. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. And as we think about Paul's focus on Christ in the epistle, we learn four things about our relationship with Christ, about our life in Christ. First, we learn that Christ is our life. Secondly, Christ is our pattern. That thirdly, Christ is our goal. And fourth, Christ is our sufficiency. I'll not deal in detail with all of them, but let us briefly consider some of these points. First, let us consider the first one, Christ is our life. And we find this as Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 26. Christ is our life. Here in these verses, and, and I'm, I'm encouraging you to, to go and read these verses, to write down um, these things and, and go read on your own. I'm just giving you an overview here. Here in these verses, as Paul writes, we come to an awareness that Christ is the source of, of the Christian life. He is the one by whom we are saved and have eternal life and he is the one by whom we continue in a life of salvation. And to put it in clearer words, we live in Christ. We, uh, uh, we live in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, through Christ and from Christ. He is the beginning. He is the middle and the end of life. He is the Alpha and Omega of the Christian life. He's the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 6 as he speaks to the Philippians? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is the one who begins a good work in us. He is the one who completes that good work in us. 
He's the one who gives vitality to our Christian life. And consider the phrase as he prays uh, for this church in chapter 1, verse 11. Consider this phrase that he says, he prays that these believers will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He says, I pray that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love what William Hendrickson says about this. He writes that Paul prays that in the hearts and lives of the Philippians there may be a rich spiritual harvest consisting of a multitude of the fairest fruits of heaven such as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and the works which result from these dispositions. And as Paul reflected on the fruits of righteousness, he undoubtedly uh, called to mind the words that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion in John 15 verse 5 when he says to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. And it is not surprising, therefore, that Paul reminds his readers that the fruits of righteousness are by Jesus Christ. He says, I pray that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. You see, the, Christ, the, the Christian life is a life lived in Christ. It's a life lived for Christ. In verse 21, Paul says with boldness, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love it in the Greek. In the Greek, there's no helping verbs there. He says, for me to live, Christ. To die, gain. To live, Christ. To die, gain. And what does Paul mean when he says to live is Christ? Even though we'll deal with this in detail as we continue on with this series, let me quote what Charles Spurgeon says as he comments on this very passage. This is what he says. He says, Paul's words mean more than most men think. They imply that the aim and end of his life was Christ. No, his life itself was Jesus. In the words of an ancient saint, he did eat and drink and sleep eternal life. Jesus was his very breath, the soul of his soul, the heart of his heart, the life of his life. Can you say as a professing Christian that you live up to this very idea? Can you honestly say that for you to live is Christ? Your business, are you doing it for Christ? Is it not done for, for self-glorification or, or for family advantage? And do you ask, is it a bad reason? He says, for the Christian, it is. He professes, the, the Christian to, professes to live for Christ. How can he live for another object while committing spiritual adultery? Because to be committed to anything more than to be committed to Christ is committing spiritual adultery. 
It is sinning against Christ. It is saying that Christ is not a treasure to me. There's something that is much more uh, of a treasure to me than Christ himself. He continues to say that many who, who carry out this principle in some measure, there are many who carry out this principle in some measure, but who is there that dare to say that he, is, he has lived holy for Christ as the apostle himself? Yet this alone is true. It's true life of a Christian. It's source. It's sustenance. It's fashion. It's end. All gathered up in one word. Jesus Christ. There's a song that I used to love that says, My heart will sing no other name except for the name of Jesus. This must be our lives as Christians. Our life in Christ. Thinking that Christ is our life. And secondly, as we look at this letter, we see that Christ is our pattern. Christ is, is our pattern. And we see that from chapter 1, verse 27, going to chapter 2, verse 30. Going to chapter 2, verse 30. You see, the life of a Christian must be a life that reflects Christ. We must be like the moon that reflects the sun. The moon has no shine of its own. It does not shine by itself. But the shine that we see in the moon is the shine of the sun. And, and the, 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 the radiance and the brilliance that we see in Christian, that the joy that we see in Christian must be the reflection of Christ himself. That must be our life. Our lives must reflect Christ himself. In, in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul says to the Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, he continues to say, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit. My goodness. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I wish we could stop here and just pray as a church that God will help us to stand, one, to stand firm in one spirit striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul here reminds them of what is most essential in the Christian walk. He says it is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is to live a life that reflects the gospel, that reflects the power of the gospel. Alexander the Great was a man who achieved a lot in his life, and his name was synonymous with greatness. His name was synonymous with hard work, and it was synonymous with dedication. One day, another soldier in the ranks of uh, uh, Alexander the Great, by the name as well of Alexander, was a man who lived in wantonness. He was a man who was a drunkard and did not do his duties as a soldier to, 
to, to, in a good way. They reported him to Alexander, and Alexander called him to himself and looked at this man and, and, and pointed at this man and said to him, it's either you change your act or you change your name. You cannot be Alexander because the word, the name Alexander is synonymous with, with greatness. In the same way, you cannot be a Christian and not live a life worthy of the gospel. It's either you change your act or you change your name. You tell us that you are truly not a Christian. Because you cannot identify with Christ and continue in a life that rejoices the devil. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ as Christians, promotes a life of unity in the church. It promotes a life of striving side by side for the progress of the gospel. He goes on to say that this life results in the church standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, this harmony, this harmony in the church, in the local church, is promoted when we are not looking to Christ. When our first allegiance is not Christ, there will be disharmony. When we look at our backgrounds, and that is the only way we can uh, relate, that is the only way we can unite, then we will not unite. There will be disharmony. There will be conflicts in the church. The foundation of the church cannot stand if Christ is not the center of our unity. If Christ is not the foundation of our unity. As a result, there will be divisions, conflicts, and, and self-centeredness. And Paul addresses these issues in chapter 2. He, he presents Christ as, as our pattern for Christian living, and as our pattern for unity, as our pattern for humility. In chapter 2, when speaking about the unity, uh, about unity, he says to Christians in verse 5, that have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. As Christians, you are to possess the mind of Christ. In other words, as Christians, we are to seek to be Christ-like as we relate with one another. And then he goes on in length to describe how Christ is a pattern for humility for us and reading from verse uh, 6. Look at verse 6. He says, verse 5, have this mind among yourself in chapter 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul presents Christ as our pattern. 
He is our pattern. He is the one that we look to in order to live the Christian life effectively. We look to his example, the example that he set for us by humbling himself to the point of death. Though he was God himself, he did not take equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He did not take advantage of his qualities of, of, of Godhood, but he humbled himself like a servant, even to the point of death. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself of all those privileges and took the form of a servant. Christ is our pattern. He's our example. Not only that, Christ is our life. He's our pattern. And thirdly, Christ is our goal. Christ is our goal. And we see this in, in chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, going to chapter 4, verse 1. Christ is our goal. What we learn from Paul here is that being in Christ completely changes a Christian's perspective. It changes your life, your former pursuits, those things that you used to pursue with all your energy do not rule you as they, as they did anymore. As Christians, we must be single-minded in our pursuit. We must be single-minded people. Consider Paul here. There was so much that he could boost about. There, there, there was so much that he, he, he could glorify in and, 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 and bring glory to himself. There was so much that he could boost about in the flesh. When you look at his life, he was a man who achieved a lot. He was a man who was from the right lineage. You look at him as he says in chapter 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a true Jew. Like a true Jew, he would not be circumcised. He, he was not just a proselyte. A proselyte would be anyone who is a Gentile who would come to the Jewish faith later on in their lives and become circumcised. Paul was born a Jew. He had the right circumcision, circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Not only that, but he continues to say that he was of the people of Israel, the people that were considered the people of God. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had so much to boast about, so much to glory in. But listen to what he says in verse 7, as he considered all that he could be boasting about. He said, but whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count it as loss. That word loss in the Greek is scubalon. It is, it is, it is dung. It is filthiness. 
He says, whatever that people count as something to boast about, achievements, academic achievements, uh, uh, positions at work, positions in the community, he says, I count it as loss. It is nothing to me in comparison to Christ. Listen, as, as he continues to say in verse 8, as we read to verse 14, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. They are nothing. They are rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or that I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. His goal was one, to know Christ. And Jerry Bridges comments on this. He says this. He says, this is the heartbeat of the godly person, to know Christ. As he contemplates in, in God, in the awesomeness of God, and, 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 and of the infinite majesty, the power and holiness of God. And then as he dwells upon the riches of his mercy and grace that are poured out on Calvary, his heart is captivated by the one who could love him so. He is satisfied with God alone. He is never satisfied with his present experience with God. He always yearns for more. He wants more and more. He is never satisfied that he has Christ, but he continues on to press on. This is the heartbeat of the godly person. And I wonder if that is your heartbeat this morning. I wonder if that is what you want, to know Christ. To know Christ. So Paul says, Christ is our life. Christ is our pattern. Christ is our goal. And lastly, Christ is our sufficiency. Christ is our sufficiency. When you read chapter 4, you could see that Paul was a man who saw Christ as enough. From chapter 4, verse 2 to verse 20. He saw Christ as enough. Christ was enough to him. He was not a man who was ruled by anxiety. You see, when your mind goes to and fro, thinking about the things and worried about the things of the world, when your face, when your eyes are not consumed with the glory and the brilliance of Christ, you will be a man or a woman who is anxious. And when we think about Paul, he was not an anxious man. He was a man who had joy 
in Christ. He calls the church and he says in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He, as we, we, we look at this, this chapter, chapter 4, he goes on to say in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Nothing should make you anxious. And think about it. Aren't there many things that make us anxious as Christians? We worry a lot, right? We worry when we wake up. We worry as we carry on our life through the day. We worry ourselves as we roll in bed and not able to find sleep because of anxiety. And Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. He's a man, as I said, who knew both a life of abundance and a life of need. And in the midst of that, he says in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be. I am, for, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Those famous words that people love to, to quote. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. As we look at this epistle to the Philippians and think about life in Christ, as we're going to spend several months looking at it, my desire is that what we have looked at today will only serve to whet your appetite, will only serve to revive you, to revive that desire to pursue Christ. Now, I want you to think about it during the week, to pray that God will help you to pay attention to his word when it is being preached, that your desire will be to see Christ, that you will use this word as an encouragement to yourself and encouragement to those who are near to you, encouragement to those you encounter. And I also desire that you pray for me as I prepare the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can look to you as our life, as our pattern, as our goal, and as our sufficiency. Pray that our hearts will be drawn to you, O oh God. Drawn to love you, to seek you, to serve you, and be committed to you. Help us as a church to grow in our love for you, to grow in unity, to grow in our desire, and to grow spiritually for you. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.